0: I wanted to just, before we dive into the book, take a minute to, to ask you if, you if you recognize what a remarkable book, um, not just the Bible is, but First but and Second Samuel. Um, this book is about a king who lived in 1000 BC. So it was written, they say, anywhere between 600 and 800 BC, um, and the content that's in here the, the level of detail that we have about David's life, and not just about his life, but about his failings and about his children's failings and, and the ugly stuff that happens, um, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure we even share with each other some the level of detail that is in here about David. Um, I wanted to give you just briefly. A couple of, uh, this is a, these are some contemporary writings. If you think about like what else was written in that if, between 1500 BC and 500 BC, um, there's only a handful of histories that are out there. Uh, this is one of Thumtos III. It's some inscriptions about an Egyptian king. And down at the bottom, you can see it reads like this. I took account of the heads of cattle. The total came to 40, 47,209 head." I took account of the number of persons. They numbered 114, 241. And if you think that's really dry, that's, that's the kind of content that's in that, in that, in that ancient writing. Um, these Assyrian chronicles are, again, some other inscriptions from a more similar time period, 9th to 7th centuries B.C. Um, down at the bottom, you can see what he wrote about himself. I don't know how you say his name, but I, king of the world, king of Assyria, I killed within the land of Assyria, Nabuznezzar, Kitty, Lugalu, a rebel who raised his hand against the king of Assyria, a wicked scoundrel who did not honor the command of the king of Assyria. That's the kind of content you get. It's either numbers or it's kind of self-glorifying like, hey, this is what I did. These are all my accomplishments, um, we don't even, honestly, the the type of biography that this is about David, even our contemporary biographies are rarely as honest as this, especially if they're political, and especially if they're written by, I mean, we have to assume this was written by people who, the Davidic dynasty was still going, so it's not like they were trying to undercut him. These are these are his descendants, and um, anyways, I just thought it was worth pointing out, what wrote, this book is just remarkable as a historical document, even if aside from everything else. There's nothing else like it in, in any ancient writing. Okay, so let's summarize where we are from last week. Um, I am grateful that I didn't have to preach on last week's passage. Uh, it was a really difficult and just an awful event. Amnon, who was David's oldest son, became obsessed with his half-sister, Tamar. And he schemed to get her in private, and then in, in the first half of chapter 13, he sexually assaulted his sister. And then he cast her out, closed the door, and sent her on her way. In that account, Absalom, who was Tamar's full brother, he takes her in, but he's not very kind to her. He kind of says, don't say anything about it, quit whining about it, and he just kind of sets her off to the side, and um, we are told of her that... uh, she lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And that, that's all we ever hear about her. For That's it. That's the end of the account of, of, of Tamar. And finally, David, in, in last week's story, we read in verse 21, when da- King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And that's about all we get from David. That's all David did. He was angry. But he, as far as we're told, he, he did nothing. So as we pick up our account in verse 23, it's two years later. Verse 21, or verse, uh, yeah, verse 23, he says, After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's son. So he's got sheep shears, which is a time when you would, you would throw a party. Uh, you know, at harvest you would throw a party. When you're shearing the sheep, you would throw a party. And you know what kind of dancing they would do when they did that? They would do the waltz. Yeah. I, in my defense, in my defense, it's really hard to find good sheep shearing puns. It's, it's really difficult. Um, yeah, there's a reason for that. Yeah, there, there maybe is. So so he invites David and so, so Absalom, my wife might be leaving soon. I think I've mortified her. So he invites David and, and all of his brothers to come along to join in the feasting that will take place. He says, um, he comes to the king and he says, behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. So I think that's David's way of politely saying, yeah, no thanks. Um, I, don't, I, I, I don't think he really wants to go. Um, the whole we want to be burdensome to you is, I mean, he invited you. I don't think he, he would think it's a burden. But David is like, mm, no, I'm good. So, I I wonder, as we go through this, if Absalom knew he would say no. Because if Absalom was planning what he was planning, he probably could not have pulled it off with David there, right? But it's interesting, he pushes again in verse 25. Absalom said, uh, or in the end of verse 24, it says, he pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him a blessing. Um so I think Absalom says again, come on, you need to come. Come with all, come with all the brothers. And, and David, David gives him a blessing, which is, I think, kind of like, no, you go and God be with you, or, or you go and you have a good time. Go with my blessing, but, but I'm not going to come. Um, so, having had David turn him down, Absalom asked to have his brothers come along. He said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? So, I'm not sure if you experienced this, but when I read that, I thought, David, are you dumb? Like, like clearly, he's, he's planning something. I, I, that, that's my impression when I, read, when I read that. Like, he's specifically asking for, for, for Amnon to come along, rather than saying, send all my brothers. But I think we have to remember a couple of things here. Um, the first is that this is two years later. It's two verses later for us, but for David, this is two years later. And as we're told Absalom never, ever expressed how angry he was about what happened. It said, we're told at the end of, of last week's section, that um, Absalom didn't say a word. He didn't say a word, and so David maybe didn't realize, likely didn't realize how upset he was about it. Second, Amnon is the oldest brother. He's the crown prince. So, it is somewhat reasonable that you would say, hey, king, you want to come with me to my party? And the king says no, and you'd say, well, send the prince then. Why don't you send the prince and my brothers? Um, So, as as blatant as it maybe looks to us, I don't think it was blatant um, to David necessarily. So, depending on how devious you want to believe Absalom is, and I would say he's pretty devious, as we'll see over the next few chapters... um, You might suspect that Absalom knew going in that David would decline the invitation. And I think you might suspect that he knew that by David declining his invitation, he would be more inclined to say yes to sending the brothers. Um, Sometimes you can get what you want by asking questions that you know the answer will be no to a couple of times. And then you ask the question that you want a yes to and the person the person feels an obligation because they've turned you down from going on your invite. And I, I think that's what's going on here. I think Absalom was just that devious. Even so, David initially even pushes back on this. He says, why should Absalom go with you? Um, and so you do wonder, is David a little suspicious? Or is he just like, I don't want to go to that party, and I don't want to make my son go to that party. They Apparently, I don't know, maybe they just weren't into waltzing. But, but, but Absalom keeps pushing Verse 27, Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's son go with him. So finally, he gets what he wants. His brothers are coming down to this this feast where he knows he's going to have his opportunity. So the stage is set, and now we read verses 28 and 29. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. So they're deep in the party. He has his servants. Uh, Amnon is drunk at this point. Um, his, his, his guard is not up. And, and Absalom's servants, uh, they get up and they, and they, they kill him. And it seems pretty clear that none of the other sons were in on this or expected this because we're told they immediately get up and they ride off. They think they're next. So they're scared, they're surprised by it, and um, yeah, it seems like they didn't really play a part in it. So now the scene moves to David back at the palace in verse 30. Um, News comes that all the sons have been killed by Absalom. And uh, let's read while while they were on the way in verse thirty, while they were on the way, news came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. now we've you've probably experienced this as I have. Oftentimes the first news that comes to us from something from a tragedy is worse than what actually happened. Um, sometimes the the leading edge of the news is um, has details in it that are just wrong. and And that's the case here. they They, what, what comes back here is, is this terrible thing that is, that, it, that is actually worse than what really happened. And David reacts um, as we would expect him to. He's, he's devastated. We read, um, then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. Tearing your garments is how you expressed grief. In, in ancient Israel, that was a, it was a, it was a way to express grief—to to tear your garments, to lay on the ground. Sometimes they would put dirt on their in their head. In um, in last chapter Tamar, that's how she expresses her grief over what happened to her. She tears her garments, and so David is just—he's just devastated. He he's um, he lays down on the ground and he thinks all of my children except Absalom are dead. Um, it's horrible news. And then in verse thirty-two, in steps Jonadab. Now, do you remember Jonadab from last week? He's David's nephew. He's the the son of his brother. He was the friend who helped Amnon plan the whole scheme of how he was going to get his sister alone with him. Jonadab is the one who was like, well, pretend to be sick and invite her in and you can can, uh, do it that way. So, this young man Jonadab, here's what he says to David in verse 32. Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, Let not, my lord, suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not, my lord, the king, so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. So that's kind of interesting. This guy somehow knows that not all of them are dead. He wasn't there. The news is still, the people, the sons are still traveling there on their donkeys going as, or the, as fast as they can. But Jonadab somehow knows that not all of them are dead. And he knows that, that it was Absalom who gave the command. And he knows that Absalom has been plotting this for the last two years. See that? He said for the last two years, he's, he's, been, he's been planning to, have, to do this. So it's possible that Jonadab is either a liar or is really wise and perceptive, um, but it seems more likely that he was a, he was a co-conspirator in this, that he helped uh, Absalom plan this whole event as well, that this was premeditated and preplanned by Absalom, and that he and his clever cousin Jonadab kind of worked out the details. Um, I wonder even if part of the plan all along had been to have a, a first messenger come and say all the king's sons are dead, um, just so that when it turns out it's just Amnon that's dead, it's a little bit less of a blow. Um, and, and Jonadab could be the good guy to counter with, oh, no, 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 it's not so bad, my king, it's just the one son. Um, so, why would, I guess that's our question, why would Jonadab align himself with Absalom? So, earlier in Second Samuel, we have a list of some of the first few children born to David. Its sons were born to David at Hebron. This is before he's king. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Chiliab of Abigail, the wife of Nabal of Carmel. And the third, Absalom, the son of Mekah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. So a couple things to note. Um, one is that Absalom is not, um, Absalom's mother is not, is not Jewish. She's is um, the daughter of Talmai, king of, of Geshur, of an adjoining kingdom. The other thing to notice is that there is this this brother in between the two of them, this Chiliab, and another. in I think in Chronicles he's he's called uh, Daniel. So it's hard to find any information. Nothing else is said about Chiliab other than that he was David's second son. And so most commentators would say that Chiliab died young, because he's never mentioned. Um. So, yeah, there are later later claims to the throne. Um, Absalom does. We'll see later. Adonijah, David's fourth son. Neither one of them ever mentioned Chiliab. So our assumption is just that Chiliab died young and is not in the way. So the point is that um, if Amnon's the oldest son and Chiliab is gone, then who's next in line for the throne? It's Absalom. Absalom would be next in line for the throne. And so perhaps Jonadab figured, um, you know, this Amnon guy isn't very reliable. He, he didn't really pull off that whole thing very well, and, and I think I would rather align myself with Absalom, and maybe there will be a good job in it for me if I help him out. I'm reading into it, but Jonadab seems a, like a bit of a schemer, and it seems like, for whatever reason, he's aligned himself with, um, with Amnon at this point. So let me read the, uh, the rest of the story here. We left it with David. David is, is, is grieving, but he's told um, by Jonadab that it's, it's just the one son. And we read then, But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Ahumud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. So imagine that just as, just as Jonadab said it was only those sons. It came to be true. How amazing. He must be really wise, right? I'm being sarcastic. But the sons all come, and, it, and it's true. They're, they're all alive other than Amnon, and they're weeping with David, and they're mourning with him. And, and Absalom, we read, flees to Gesher. And Gesher is where his grandfather lived. That's where his mother had come from. It's, it's situated to the east of the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. It's located in the area known as, as Bashan, which is modern day. It's the Golan Heights. It's where the Golan Heights are these days, if you know modern Jewish uh, geography. And so, as we said, looking at our genealogy, this is where, this is where Absalom's mother came from. This is where his grandfather lives. Um, and it, it's interesting that where he shared his sheep, if, uh, if, if Jerusalem is here and, and Gesher is here, where he sheared his sheep is here, so it was he didn't have to go through Jerusalem to get um, to get to his getaway place. That the Baal Hazor is right between the two, um, so it just again speaks of the fact that it seems like this was this was planned, this was premeditated, if we in case we had any doubt. And we're told that he stays there um, for three years, and that and that David mourned for his son day after day. I thought it was interesting that it's a little bit obscure there, which son he's mourning for, um, whether he's mourning for, for Amnon, who is, who is gone, or if he's mourning for Absalom, um, or, or maybe both, um, but he mourns for him day after day. Um, if nothing else, what we can say about David is, though he is somewhat, somewhat passive and, and not necessarily always the um, authoritative or the, the guiding father he should be, he, he does love his sons. I think we can, we, can, we can give him that. He, Throughout all of this, David seems to have a, a deep love for his children. Um, but the passage does end on, on, on this odd note a little bit, and the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Basically, he's missing Amnon, Absalom. He's saying, I, I've grieved, I, I'm, I'm sad that this son is gone, but I miss this son who is still alive and that, that I, I wish I could see. And so he's mourning, and he, want, he wants to see him. Um, this is just the beginning of Absalom's story. Uh, the next few weeks, um, maybe maybe more than that, we'll see Absalom's story unfold. It's it's not a good story. I think I said to Mike Maurer this week, um, I like almost everybody in the Old Testament, even the rotten ones. I can usually find a way to like. Um, I, I kind of like Joab, even though he's a little bit rotten in this story. I mean, I can find something to like about him. I don't have much much like for Absalom. I'm I'm not a fan. Um, I'm not sure why I'm telling you that, other than I just he's 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 not a, he's not a great a great person in my book. So what I want to do though is is dig in and, and let's see what we can learn from both of you, from from this story. And I think the two main characters, Absalom and David, are the ones that we can learn the most from. So first, let, let's look at Absalom. He witnessed this injustice that happened to his sister, and it stirred up anger in him. And I think it's made worse by the fact that he takes her home, and his father does nothing. His father is the one who has the authority to actually do something about it. His father is the king, and he should have done something. Amnon should have been punished, but there is no punishment at all that we read about that happened. And I think we've all experienced this, right? If we see injustice done in the world... um, either far away, like like what we've seen in in Israel these past few weeks, um, or what we see in the news constantly, or or nearby in the lives of those who are close to us. When we see injustice and the proper authorities don't do anything about it, it can make us angry. Reading the news and seeing things happen and justice not being done, we want to do something. We want to do something to make it right. In fact, I think there's maybe part of us that, that reads this story and, and sees what Absalom did, and um, maybe you found yourself rooting for Absalom a little bit, like, you know, Amnon had it coming. It was awful what he did. And you're not wrong. Absalom, or Amnon did deserve to be punished. But I don't think Absalom was the one who should have done, done it. Murder is not justice. It's also worth noting that Absalom's anger and his hatred, the murder that he, that he, that he actually plays out, um, you could make an argument that, that murder is worse than, worse than rape. I mean, in our justice system, I would say that it gets punished more harshly. But Absalom becomes as big of a villain as his brother in the way that he plays out um, this, whole, um, this whole thing. So how should we respond? Romans gives us some guidance. Paul writes, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's the guidance God gives us when we feel that kind of anger. And it's a hard thing to do, but it's, it's, it's what God tells us. There's another thing in this too, I think. <clears throat> if we are honest with ourselves... Often our anger, often the things we get most angry about, have other things underlying them. In the case of Absalom, is it possible that his desire to be king is part of what fueled this anger he had? I mean, I'm not saying he didn't have something legitimate to be angry about. But is it possible that, I mean, it's kind of convenient that in getting justice, he also becomes next in line for the throne. And you wonder, did he even realize that that was part of it, or did he convince himself it was all righteous anger? It was all selfless, righteous anger for his sister's dignity and honor. I know so often I can be like this. I can be a Pharisee, a hypocrite, not seeing the plank in my own eye, seeing the plank in somebody else's eye and not the plank in my own eye. Um, So often my righteous anger is, is rooted in selfishness, if I'm honest about it. And I think in some I think we could make the case that to some extent that's what's going on here with with Absalom. Now on the far side of this we have David. And David is really passive in this story. When Amnon sins, it says David's really angry. Uh He's just really angry, but he does nothing. When Absalom murders his brother, David upset, but again, he does nothing. He doesn't go to the, to the king of Geshur and say, send him back so that justice can be done. He, just, he misses him, and, and he's sad, but he doesn't do anything about it. Well, why is he so passive? We're not told, but we can make some guesses. It is interesting that these two sins that his son did are so similar to the sins that David did a couple chapters ago. Um... Adultery with Bathsheba is a, is, a, is a sexual sin. Murdering Uriah, her husband, is a sin of, of murder. They're very similar to what his sons have done. So we know that David has accepted God's forgiveness. If we go and we read Psalm 51, I mean, he, he confesses, and we can, even in the account we can see that, God, that he has confessed his sin, and he's accepted, um, and, and he, I think he knows that God has forgiven himself. But what I wonder is if he has accepted his own forgiveness. So I want to be careful here. Um, I don't mean I'm going to say like, well, I forgive myself. Because there, there's a worldly wisdom where we say, well, as long as I forgive myself, it's all okay. And that's, that's not what the Bible talks about. But if we've confessed our sin and we've repented of it and given it to God, we have to leave that sin behind us. Because when we carry it around and let it hinder us from serving God, that's not honoring to Him. And I thought Tim Keller put this this nicely and succinctly. He said, to say, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, means you've failed an idol whose approval is more important than God's. He's saying, you're making yourself an idol. You're saying, well, like, yeah, God's threshold for forgiveness is here, but my threshold for forgiveness is here. And you're, you're putting yourself above God when you do that. If God has forgiven you, you need to forgive you too. You're making yourself a higher authority than God when you refuse to do that. God says he's removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. And why does this matter, apart from what Keller says about about where, how it positions us in terms of God. It matters because carrying that sin around makes, it makes you less useful to God. It makes you less useful and less able to serve those around you in the way that God intended. We might say, you might see something happen, and, and, and maybe like David, you're like, well, who am I to judge? I, I've, done, I've done awful things too. Who am I to tell them what they did was wrong or to try to help them to find the correct path? We turn a blind eye to corruption, we ignore our responsibility because we're so caught up in feeling unworthy or unqualified that we don't see the responsibility that's in front of us. And I think that's what's happening with David here. I think he had a responsibility in both of these cases to act, to do something, to be the king. And I just think he was still looking so inward um, that he didn't, that that he chose not to do that. So we see David doing that as the king not doing his job. We see Dave, we see Amnon, or Absalom, taking justice into his own hands. Um, and, and because David didn't act in either of those cases, much worse things happened. There's a lot worse to come. I mean, spoiler alert, there's a lot worse to come for Absalom. And I don't think it had to be like that. I think David could have, he could have parented his children better. He just, he could have. This could have gone way better than it did, and it does not go well. So looking at these things together, you could in one sense say that Absalom's error was too much law, and that David's error was too much license. So by law, I mean um, when we take a legalistic and a rule-based approach to faith and life, a rigid adherence to religious rules, moral codes, when we... Embrace a legalistic mindset, become judgmental, self-righteous. We are erring on the side of law. Absalom was focused on the law, on punishment for Amnon, on making him pay. He was blind to his own sin, as we often are when we're obsessed with the sin of others, but the extreme that he ran to was that of law. On the other end of the spectrum is license. That is a permissive approach to life, um, Disregarding moral boundaries, living without accountability, um, not, not judging evil when we see it. And, and this is the side that David fell on. He refused to act because he, he, he erred on the side of license. So humans have an odd way of, of, of either falling into one of those camps, either being Pharisees or just throwing away all, all moral compass or bouncing back and forth between the two. We, we, we sometimes do that too, but we tend to run to those extremes. So, how does the gospel address this? I think the gospel is the middle ground between those two things, and it includes both. Because the gospel says to us we can't earn our salvation through rule keeping, the law, nor can we live without regard for moral responsibility. The gospel includes both, it's, it's the balance between truth and grace. Grace provides forgiveness, acceptance, and love, truth calls for moral responsibility. transformation. It calls us to live in a way that reflects God's grace. So how does it do that? The fact that Jesus didn't just come to, to teach, but that he came and died, that he died in a manner that was a, it was an awful punishment, a horrific means of punishment, that tells us that God takes sin seriously. God takes the law seriously. Our sins matter. The evil you see around you, it matters. Jesus' death on the cross emphasizes that, that God's not blind to it. We see God in the, in, in the cross telling us, yeah, there is a lot of injustice in the world. I see it. And that's why this, this event happened. It wasn't, just a, it wasn't just a little ceremony that Jesus came and did. It was a death. It was a punishment for crime. And he also reminds us that we're part of that. We don't stand outside of the bad things. We're part of them. And that those bad things, those sins, they lead to death. But if God had just left it there, um, then our only two paths would be the, the path of Absalom or David, to either run to law or run to license. Do we focus on the sins of others, as Absalom did, or we're filled with anger and malice? Um, or we focus on our own sins, as David did, and we're overcome with inaction? But that's not where God left us. Instead, Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the grave, and in that there's hope. Hope that God has overcome sin, and that he'll one day erase all sin from the world. He's going to judge it, but then he's going to get rid of it. I want to finish with Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's the hope of the gospel. Let's pray together. Oh God, we are so grateful for the gospel. We are so grateful that you care about sin. That you see it, you see all the injustice in the world, God. You are not passive. And we are so grateful that you forgive us for our sins as well, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. Help us to run to him and take refuge in him this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen.